If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 1? We're going to spend the next four weeks in what I believe is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Scripture and in all of literature. We're going to read the whole chapter today, so it's a little bit lengthy, and if you need to sit down, that's, that's, perfectly, that's perfectly fine. I don't want you to feel guilty about that. But let's dive into God's Word together in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to the return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to the return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for that it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my God, my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and Lord, what we want is we want to hear from you. We want to know that we have met face to face with the living God. 
so that like Moses, as he came down from Sinai with his face aglow so that others weren't even able to fully look at him, that, Lord, we might leave this place with our faces glowing with your glory, that we might be lights in the midst of this land. Father, I pray that today, particularly, that you would minister to the brokenhearted, that you would minister to those who feel like their lives have collapsed around them, that you would minister to those who feel like they can't take one more step. Father, in their suffering, you are there. You draw near to the brokenhearted. And so, God, we come now and we offer up this morning, we offer up this text, and we say, oh, God, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back with you after a bit of, a, of an absence. So the guy that you see on the screen here, this handsome fella, is a man by the name of Mo Berg. Mo Berg. Now, he may not be a familiar name to you. He wasn't to me until I, I came across a podcast that was uh, talking about him. But Mo Berg was a catcher in the 20s and 30s in Major League, Major League Baseball for about 15 years. And honestly, he was a pretty mediocre baseball player. I mean, I guess as mediocre as a major leaguer uh, can be. And he rode the bench quite a bit. But he was known throughout baseball and, by, and especially by newspaper editors as being the brainy man of baseball. The brainy man of baseball. He was incredibly educated. He graduated from Princeton. He had a law degree from Columbia. He spoke numerous languages. He loved to travel. And they said that he would just sit on the bench and he would talk about random facts. We probably all have a friend like this, right? That you're just hanging around them and they're always talking about things and you wonder like why on earth anybody would know that. Well, that was Mo Berg. That he was actually a man of great intellect and he loved to go and to be able to, to display great uh, insight into things and to learn new things as he went. Well, as he retired from baseball, he began to travel more and more. And he would go particularly to Japan and begin to teach, uh, teach baseball over there. And he would travel to Europe. Well, the OSS, this is where the story takes a bit of a turn. The OSS, which was the, basically the CIA in the, in the 30s and 40s, they learn about Moberg and they realize that with him they have a unique opportunity. So by now, we're getting into the early 40s, and obviously World War II is raging on. And Moberg himself was a Jew and took particular interest in what was happening to, his, to the Jewish people across Europe, particularly in Germany. And as, what was at the forefront of everyone's mind was who was going to be the first ones to have the atomic bomb. Because everybody pretty much knew whoever got the atomic bomb first was likely to win the war. And Germany had some of the most renowned scientists of the day, particularly a man named Werner Heisenberg, who was their lead physicist in the development of the atomic bomb. Well, word came out that Heisenberg was going to be giving a lecture in Italy. And so what the OSS decided to do is they would take a man as famous as Mo Berg, but who was just as famous for his intellect and for traveling, and they would send him into this lecture to infiltrate the lecture, and nobody would suspect that he was actually a spy for the American government. 
And so he was sent to this lecture so that he could go and listen, and he was to surmise whether or not Heisenberg and the German physicists were close enough to developing the atomic bomb. And if, if they were close enough to developing the atomic bomb, Mo Berg, the catcher who played most notably for the Boston Red Sox, was supposed to execute the most famous scientist in the world. Now that makes you wonder for a second, doesn't it? I tell Megan all the time when we're watching some of the, you know, like we watch Criminal Minds and things like this, and I just say, like, do these things actually happen? Is this real? Are there really people operating like this? And you read the story of a man like Mo Berg, and you think, maybe, maybe. It, it makes you wonder about all the people that you meet if you're meeting some of them who might be a spy or meeting some of them that are doing some great cooperative. I think about that when I meet Anthony Atkinson. Every time I hang out with Anthony, I just wonder, like, what's this guy up to, you know? Or, or, or maybe, what if John Blanton has really like been on mission over in the Middle East for the last four weeks and we just didn't know where he was, right? But th- that we hear stories about people like Mo Berg and we begin to realize that for a lot of the time, people, circumstances, things are not as they seem to be, Right? We, we see them and it begins to bring an awareness to us that not always at surface level what is most obvious and apparent to us is the truth. Well, as we come into the book of Ruth, we could probably summarize the book of Ruth that way. We can summarize the book of Ruth by basically saying that according to the providence of God, in the providence of God, things are almost never as they seem to be. This is a, a famous portrait that was painted by William, William Blake. And so you have Naomi with Ruth clinging to her and Orpah, who is heading sorrowfully so off uh, to return to her mother's house. And so you, you, you read the book of Ruth and what you're supposed to get by the narrator's design is you're supposed to be set up the whole time for this great fall that's going to happen at the end where the providence of God comes raining down. But you know, it's probably true in your life too that you've come to realize that if you've walked with God any period of time. That you go through the moment and in the heat of the moment you were unsure how anything good could come, how God could ever be there only to realize maybe some years later, maybe decades later, that things were not as you believed them to be. That God very often works in ways that we can't see and does what we don't understand. And quite honestly, we would say that God works in ways flat out that we wish he wouldn't work. That's certainly the case in the book of Ruth. That's certainly the case for Naomi, for Ruth herself. That's certainly going to be what we see bubbling beneath the surface. And so what we have, especially here in chapter 1, but throughout the book really, is a series of ironies that are setting us up and preparing for us to understand better the, the providence of God, the unsuspecting, surprising, twisting, confusing, painful providence of God. And what I want us to see, we're going to be introduced to three main characters today. And in those three main characters, we're going to see three surprising ironies right out of the beginning that are not really going to be resolved until the fourth week. Now, you can take the book of Ruth and you really can divide it into four acts if you were to look at it like like a playwright. You You could look at it as four four different acts, and they really correspond quite well with the four chapters of Ruth. And so there may be some times today where where it feels a little bit different than we normally would have in a sermon where, where maybe you feel like there's some tension that's a little unresolved. 
where, where maybe there's some despair and there's not as much hope as there ordinarily would be, that's because I don't want to give too much of the story away. And it's setting us up for what God is going to do on the backside to bring all of these things together so that ultimately we're able to see how our lives parallel with the story of Ruth and how God is at work in its midst. The first irony that I want us to see as we look at the first character, uh, which is Naomi, is that God's plan ruins dreams. Now, is that why you came to church this morning? Huh? Did you come to church to hear that, that God's plan may very well ruin your dreams? This is what we do, isn't it? We take our plans, and we take our dreams, and we take our aspirations, and we go to God with them, and we say, all right, God, here's the plan. Here's where I'm headed. Here's what I'm going to do. I want you to bless it. God bless it, right? And we take our place. And by the way, we develop these at like 16, right? And all of them have us being well-paid rich people, right? All of them have us with beautiful families that with the stair-step children and the, and the white picket fence and the perfect house and the fulfilling job. And we, we go to God and we say, all right, Lord, here it is. And we make these plans. And then what happens? As those plans begin to change, as our dreams begin to crumble, we go back to God and we say, God, how dare you? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Is this not the plan? Is this not your will? Is this not the dream? Is this not good? Actually, God, are you not good? How could you betray me this way? You can imagine Naomi, as we read the story, what we begin to see is that her dream was in full swing. You have to understand that for a, a Hebrew woman, the dream was to have a marriage and to have a place in life and to have a son so that the covenant blessings could be promised to your family to be able to enjoy them for all posterity. And here's Naomi, and she's married to Elimelech, and things are good. As a young bride, she's coming, and her dream is, is coming true. She, she has two sons, and those two sons would have represented a double blessing to Naomi from the Lord. Her dream is more than on track. She's experiencing even greater things than what she would have hoped for and what she would have expected. And then as she begins to process, most commentators that I read believe that this family enjoyed a great measure of affluence. They lived in a town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally translates as the town of bread, the town of grain. They, they could do a grain harvest, which is alluded to in the last verse there. They're in Bethlehem, which they're unable to do in the rest uh, or the majority of Israel. And so it was a, a prosperous area and she was likely a prosperous family. But that's where this story begins to turn. And, and though her dream starts out exactly on track, uh, Naomi ends up headed in a direction that is the exact opposite. And her life actually becomes a series of ironies. It says there that a famine broke out in the land of Bethlehem. And so you're there in the town of bread, the house of bread, and there is no bread to eat. Both history and the Bible affirm to us that there was a great drought that lasted four or five years where rain was not coming and the crops did not come in and famine broke out so that people began to starve to death. And this is to be expected. You'll, you'll remember that notice here that this was in the days of the judges. See, the way that we're supposed to, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in a second, the way we're supposed to understand the book of Ruth is the book of Ruth is an addendum to the book of Judges. It shows us a, a, a zeroed-in, microscope 
picture of one family and what was happening as this broader generation is doing what is right in their own eyes. But God had promised to his people, he had promised to his people that if you forsake my covenant, if you disobey me, if you break my commandments, I will let you experience pestilence. I will let you experience famine. I will let you experience what happens when you aren't fed by my hand. And so really what we read about happening in Bethlehem is what we should be expecting to happen all along. The judgment of the Lord has come. And so what does Naomi do? She does what all of us would do. She and Elimelech adapt and overcome, right? You have to adapt when the dream is threatened. You begin to make changes and you begin to evolve and you begin to adapt so that you can some way, somehow salvage the dream. And so they leave. They leave Bethlehem and they go to a, 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 to a region that they would have been loath to go. They go to the, lead, to the region of Moab, a region that represented the very curse of God, which I'm going to explain in greater detail. A, a region that would, would represent everything that God stood against and everything that the people of Israel were not to be. But they, were to, they had to go to Moab hoping that they could find something to eat. So I want you to think about this and the irony of the moment. They go to Moab, why? To save their lives, to save themselves. Naomi probably signs off on Elimelech's plan because she's thinking about the boys, right? She's thinking, just like any good mother does, she's thinking about the boys. I've got to have my boys. My boys have got to be taken care of. And so they go off to Moab that they might live. But in Moab, they all die. The land in pursuit of life actually ends up bringing death. And it brings into our mind what Jesus has said. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who gives up his life shall save it. Right? So they go hoping to, to adapt and to be able to salvage the dream, but the dream is utterly put to death. And it says that the woman is left without her two sons and her husband. There's, there's no part of the dream that is still intact within 10 years. And some of you can identify with that. You graduated high school, or you got married, or you graduated from college, or you started your business, and you had all of these dreams and all of these aspirations, and you could have given me the 10-year plan, and you could have given me the 10-year projections, and you could have showed me how all your student loans were going to be paid off, and how how your family was going to grow, and how you were going to be able to go from that starter home to that more permanent resident, and how your, how your business was going to hit the market just right and go to the next level, and yet 10 years later, the whole dream has died. You know exactly what Naomi feels. You know exactly the despair that she's facing. She goes looking to to find life for her family, but instead what she finds is death. Not only does she go looking to find life, but she looks she's going to look to be filled, right? There, there, there's not food to eat. They're emptied. We're supposed to make these connections in our mind. But listen to what she says in verse 21. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. This is the opposite of what was supposed to happen. She was adapting. She was going that her family might be full, that her boys might be full, that she might be full. But she does, like so many of us do, going in pursuit of having more, going in pursuit of having better. She comes back without what she started with to begin. And she ultimately says, I didn't realize what I had until I lost it. 
turns out I was full to begin with. I was full. The Lord had given me my husband and the Lord had given me my sons. And I went and I wanted more and I went and I wanted better. I went and I wanted my stomach filled. But I come back empty. No, I didn't die, but my dream did. I didn't die, but my, my husband did. I didn't die, but my boys did. I went away wanting to be fuller, and instead I realized the fullness that I had left in, and I came back utterly and totally destitute, empty. And so she says something, another irony. She says, I've changed. My grief has changed me. My pain has changed me. My sadness has changed me. The heaviness of my life, it's changed me. My loss has changed me. Look at what she says, verse 20. She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. You know what Naomi means? Naomi means pleasant. It means delightful. Often the Hebrews, they would use names to, to perhaps foreshadow someone's life. Or they would, they would use names to describe uh, something that is particularly apparently true about that person. And so you can imagine that from Naomi's earliest, uh, earliest days that she was placed in the arms of her mother. Her mother must have taken such great delight in her. Her dad must have loved her so much. She just filled their family with, with rays of light. And she was one that they said, this is going to be her track in life. This is who she's going to be. She is going to be the one that is known as pleasant, as one who is known as wonderful. But Naomi says, my life isn't pleasant. My life is pain. My life isn't what I want it to be. My life isn't what I think it should be. My life isn't what I expected it to be. So don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. My pain has changed me. And I feel the bitterness of the Lord's hand coming up against me. As my dream has crumbled beneath my feet, I see, I see I can't be who I was anymore. And I wonder how many of you feel that way. I wonder how many of you think about the loss of a spouse or the loss of your health or, or the loss in your business, the, the lack of satisfaction in your career, and you just think, this is not how I planned. Don't call me. I am not me. This is not who I am. This is not what I expected to be. Just call me loser. Call me failure. Call me destroyed. Call me depression. Call me whatever you want to call me, but that is not who I am anymore. I'm a shell of myself. What's maybe most surprising to us is who all of this loss is attributed to. And you can see here, she says, Do not call me Naomi. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And throughout what we find here, is we find that, that the Lord is the one, and the narrator never corrects her. The narrator never even paints her in a negative light that she would take this pain in her life, and she would take this hardship in her life, and she would hold it up and she would say, this is what God has done. This is how God has brought his plan to be. You see, Naomi's plan was to go and, fi and find life, but the Lord's plan was that she would experience death. 
Her plan was that she would go and get filled. And the Lord's plan was that she would be utterly emptied. Her plan was that she would live a pleasant life with pleasant dreams, headed down a pleasant path. And the Lord's plan was that she would know the bitter pain of true and meaningful loss. That is, the Lord's plan had killed her plan. The Lord's plan had put to death Naomi's dreams. And I thought about that this week. And I thought about so many of your faces. So many of you that I've talked with and prayed with and cried with. I thought about people who, due to no, no sin in their own life, no problems in their own life, nothing that they've done, nothing that they can control. I, th- I thought about people who, who they've, they've worked all their life to retire. And, and they had this idea, this picture of their golden years where, where they, with their significant other, were going to be able to go and, and enjoy and travel and see the world and go and live on mission and serve the Lord in whatever ways that they wanted to serve the Lord and see parts of the country that they've never seen before and be able to enjoy their grandbabies coming home and, and hugging on them and, and being able to celebrate Christmases. And then one of the spouses passes away unexpectedly at way too young an age. Or one of you is diagnosed with some debilitating disease and you look every morning and you think, I love them, but my dream is dead. The dream that kept me going all those years, the, the thing that I aspired for, it's, it's gone. I think about young mamas and daddies that are in this room. And all you want is you want to bring a baby home. And for whatever reason... There's been miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. There, there, there's been um, test after test that keeps coming up, and you, you, you just can't figure out why it's not happening. I thought about some of you who, who you really believe that by now you would be married to Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and Mr. and Mrs. Wright hasn't come along, and they're not even in view. And you thought, you thought your life would look very differently than it looks right now. Your dream was very different than what your experience is right now. And it feels like with every passing day, a little bit more of who you believe yourself to be has died. What about some of you? You thought you were going to have a job that had purpose and meaning. And every day you wake up early and you go to what feels like a dead-end job just to, just to give service to the man so you can bring home a check and have bread and turn around and do it the next week. And you put one foot in front of another. You plod day after day. And you just find yourself wondering, is this really all my life is? Is this really all life is going to amount to? feel like your dream has died. That living it in the plan of God has brought you to a place that you didn't want to go and you wish God would operate in any way other than the plan that he's operating in. Some of you have experienced divorces this way. Some of you have experienced the loss of your health this way. Some of you have experienced the loss of your finances this way. Some of you have experienced the loss of your mental health in this way. And you're just at a loss, at a place, and you don't know really where to turn. Can I say that there's something that we see Naomi do? There's something that we see in the Psalms that David does that we aren't very good at doing. What we've got to begin doing, church, is we've got to begin being real about the sense of loss that we feel. When your dream dies, it's like experiencing a death in your life. 
your whole future has changed. Everything that you had planned, every way that you thought of yourself, your identity is fundamentally being rewired and it's enough to short circuit. But yet we keep pressing all that stuff down and packing all that stuff into our soul and putting a fake smile on our face and pretending like all of it's okay. And y'all, it's not. We need to be like Naomi and bear our hearts before the Lord. You need to be honest with what you feel and what you think with God. He already knows, man. He can handle it. Maybe your kids can't handle it, but the Lord can handle it. Maybe your wife can't handle it, but the Lord can handle it. And you hear David would go before the Lord and he would say, Lord, why do you afflict me like this? Why does it feel like my joints are being ripped apart? Why is it that it feels like everything that I do right turns wrong? If you're angry, you need to be angry before the Lord. If you're, if you're devastated, you need to be devastated before the Lord. If you've got questions for God, you need to go to God with your questions. If you want to know why the Lord has dealt bitterly with you, you need to go before the Lord and bear your soul and tell Him that your plan was different. You need to grieve with God and lament with God. You need to take who you are in the rawness of your soul and in the dis function of your mind and bring it before God and say, oh God, I want it to be different. Help me. See, we cannot be fully developed, healthy, mature people of God until we have brought all of who we are before Him. And I don't want to give away too much of it. But Naomi leaves the window cracked in her despair, though. And she goes and she talks about how bitterly the Lord has dealt with her and how there's really no chance that her dream can be accomplished. She leaves the door cracked. There's these hints. She says in verse 6, there at the end, she says, For she had heard, this is, this is Naomi, that the, in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people. In other words, Naomi didn't believe that God had stopped working. The Lord had visited his people in the field and he had lifted this famine so that now there was bread in Bethlehem again. Even here, she references twice to the Lord. This is the covenant name. This is Yahweh. And so this is the, the assurance that, that God's promises are still true. And so you can hear in the desperation, in the rawness that is Naomi, that she goes before the Lord and she's saying, Lord, may your promises, oh, I plead that your promises are true, even though it turns out that my dreams are not. There's, there's a crack of hope in there for you, isn't there? It reminds me of what Job says, another one who dealt better with his emotions than we do. When Job says, he, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. The very one whose plan has brought the end to your dreams is the very one who can take those dashed dreams and transform them for your good and for his glory. And so though he slay you, you can hope in him. My prayer has been that some of you would bring that pain, bring that disappointment, bring that bitterness and lay it down before the Lord and get raw with him. Maybe you need to go and close the door at your home this afternoon and just yell and shout. Maybe some of you need to go and sob. Maybe some of you need to go and just talk very frankly with God. Second irony that I want you to see this morning is that God builds with broken blocks. 
God builds with broken blocks. I mentioned earlier that this was during the time of Judges and that Ruth is really an addendum to the book of Judges and that we're supposed to see here that these things work in concert with one another. And what the book of Judges is meant to cause us to ask is that we're supposed to ask, where is true Israel? Where is true Israel? Where is faithful Israel? Where is the Israel that is the remnant? Where is Israel that is, loves the Lord and is obeying the Lord and is faithful to the Lord? Where are the true people of God in the midst of this desolation, in the midst of all of this unfaithfulness? Where are the true people of God? And the exact wrong answer to that question is Ruth. The exact wrong answer to that question is Ruth. Everything about Ruth makes her the wrong woman. Okay, first of all, she is a, a she is barren. She is a barren widow. She's a barren widow. Let me tell you what that would mean. First of all, think about Ruth. Her life isn't exactly on track either. Not long after she gets back from her honeymoon, her husband is gone. And her husband is gone, and she he has not left a, a son behind. She's a widow. So what that means is, is that essentially the family name is gonna die with her. Can you imagine walking around every day, and some of you may feel like this, walking around every single day, and it's like you're wearing a sign that says, God is unhappy with me. God doesn't care about me. God is angry with me. For a woman in the time of Ruth to be barren was essentially to wear a big banner that says, God doesn't like me very much. God is displeased with me. And so she's wearing her shame everywhere that she goes. It was the sign that the covenant promises to that family were, in fact, coming to an end. And they were not going to be enjoyed by posterity. So here she is in her grief. She has brought shame to herself. She has brought shame to her family, at least in her mind. And now she's supposed to go and, and, and back to her homeland. She has no place to go. She's destitute. To be a widow means that she can't provide for herself. She can't own property. The only hope that she has is that someone else will provide for her. Someone else will give them bread from her table. And so when Naomi looks to Ruth and says, go back to your mother's house, she's being gracious. She's being kind to her. She's saying, look, go where you can have a certain meal. Go where people will at least look after you. Go in your shame and let them try to nurse you back to health. And maybe there you can find another husband and relaunch this dream from the beginning. But she wasn't just a barren widow. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Moabite. Verse 4, it says, these took, that, those were the sons, right? The sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years in the land of Moab. So she was a Moabite. Now, why is that significant? If the Moabites don't come into your mind, you need to, maybe when you have time to go home, turn to Genesis chapter 19. And Genesis chapter 19 tells us where the Moabites come from. You remember Lot, after the Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, the, uh, Lot's daughters get him drunk, and he has an incestuous relationship with his daughters. And it says that the Moabites are the product of one of those incestuous relationships. So they were seen by the people of God as being a particularly despicable people. They were seen to be people that represented everything that God hated. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 2 or 3, I'm trying to remember, it's either 2 or 3, it tells us that they worshiped a God by the name of Kamash. 
And Kamash actually demanded that you bring human sacrifices, something that was totally forbidden by the Israelites. And so these were people that worshipped a despicable God. They represented the very worst of the judgment of God. And then, to top it on top of all of that, if you go to Numbers chapter 25, what you learn is that when the people of God come into the land of Canaan, the very first people to deceive them and to bring them into idolatry is none other than the Moabites. So when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says this, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter into the assembly of the Lord forever. These were cursed people. Basically, this is what Moses told them. You can't even be friends with the Moabites. You can't even barbecue with the Moabites. I don't even want you to, to walk by their side of the sidewalk. Like I want you to stay away from the Moabites at all costs. And here's Ruth. She's the wife he was never supposed to have. The daughter-in-law that Naomi was never supposed to have. And Naomi is sending her back and saying, look, you've been nice, you've been good. You should go away. You can't go where I'm going. I'm going to Bethlehem. Moabites aren't welcomed in Bethlehem. I'm going to be among my people and you are not one of my people. And you cannot go to me, with me, to my people. But it says that Ruth comes with one of the most powerful messages in all the Bible. It says that she clung to her. It's the, the picture of that, that Genesis 2 that a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And it's her, the picture of her forsaking all that has been passed, forsaking her own family, leaving her dad and leaving her mom and clinging, holding fast to Naomi saying that I'm going to be, you're my family now. Ruth says these, listen to these words, do not urge me to leave you. You may have heard these read at a wedding before. Did you ever know, by the way, if you've heard these read at a wedding before, it's kind of interesting that this is a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. I think that would be a nice twist to the wedding if the daughters-in-law would say something like this to the mother-in-law. That would be a unique twist, right? Do, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. So you have Naomi, and she's pleading with her, go back to your mom, go back to your dad, go be back in your home. And you have her saying, you don't understand, you don't understand. I forsake my identity. I'm abandoning who I was. I'm abandoning my family. I'm abandoning my gods. I'm abandoning the curse of the Lord. I'm abandoning this land that curses Yahweh. I'm abandoning this land that does what he hates. I'm abandoning all of that and I'm holding fast to you. I am forsaking not only my identity, I am forsaking my personal security. I cannot provide for myself. I cannot care for myself. I cannot help for myself. And I know if I go home, there is security there. But I am forsaking my identity. I am forsaking my security. And I am doing this. I am putting my well-being in the hands of the Lord. When she makes this vow, she says, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I put my well-being in the hands of the Lord. I will not return to my gods. Your God will be my God. I believe in Yahweh, and in the way of Yahweh, and in the path of Yahweh, and the truth of Yahweh, and the hope of Yahweh. So what we are seeing here in the Old Testament, in Ruth chapter 1, is a pattern of what it means to be converted to Christ. In fact, 
the word where it says return, this word shows up 11 times in the first chapter. And this is the word that is used in the Old Testament to mean repentance and conversion. And so what we are witnessing here in the life of Ruth is someone who has found one who is worthy of more than all that they have and worthy of more than all that they've seen and is greater than anyone else that they've ever known. It reminds you of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the man who finds the hidden treasure. And there's a man that walks through the, through the field and he stumbles there in the field and he recognizes that it's a treasure in the field that's worth more than everything else that he has combined. And so it says that the man in his joy goes and sells all of his possessions and everything that he's ever owned. And he sells all of it that he can just buy the field because if he can have the field, if he can have that treasure, he has everything. And you hear that here on the lips of Ruth. That so long as I have him, so long as he is the one that is taking hold of my well-being, I have everything that I need. And this morning, I wonder if you've been there. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning, and have you ever actually done that? Where you forsake who you've always been. You forsake who you've always wanted to be. You forsake trying to take hold of your life and make your life what it's supposed to be. You forsake all sense of, of, self, uh, of self-security to place your well-being in the hands of Yahweh. See, here's the beauty. Here's the irony. We've been looking for where true Israel is. And you know who represents true Israel in the time of the judges? A Moabite Woman, See, what we see is that God is, in fact, even in light of the unfaithfulness of his people, even in light of great sin in the land, God is still building his kingdom, but God is building his kingdom with broken blocks. And that's us. That's me. That God could build his kingdom however he saw fit, and yet somehow, some way, for some reason, he chose me. See, there's, no, there, there's a lot of reasons that you may not come to the Lord. There's a lot of reasons that you may want to do something different other than follow the Lord. But there's only one reason why you should come. And it is because He is glorious and He wants you. He wants you. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your story is. He wants you. As messed up as you are, He's building His kingdom out of broken blocks like brings us to the last point. God appears out of control. God appears out of control. How do you read Ruth chapter 1 and not ask, where in the world is God? Where in the world is God? It's just like you. you, If you're in Naomi's situation, don't allow yourself to be detached because this is a story that happened a long time ago. Put yourself on the pages. Put yourself on your darkest night. Put yourself, when you're laying on your bathroom floor, not sure that you'll ever be able to stand on your feet again as tears pour out of your face. Put yourself in that time in which you couldn't eat for one, two, three weeks hardly. Put yourself in that place in which you're dehydrating yourself because you forget all sense of self-care. You ask what? Where in the world is God? Where in the world is God? I have given him my life. I have given him my devotion. I have given him my time. I have given him my resources. I have given to him my hope. Where in the world is God? We're supposed to ask that question. 
In fact, there's two questions that always come up when we suffer. There's two questions that are represented here. There's a title given for God the Almighty, and there's a name given for God the Lord, and these represent the two questions. See, Almighty is, you may have heard before, God called El Shaddai. And that's what's represented here. And that's what the Hebrew word is here. And this means God's sovereignty and his majesty. In other words, his rule over all the earth. And the question that's implied here is Naomi cries out and the Almighty has come against me. Is, Is God not sovereign enough to fix this? Is God not mighty enough to fix this? Is God not big enough and majestic enough to fix what is happening in my life? Then you have Lord, which we've, I mentioned earlier, is Yahweh. This represents God's goodness, His promises. And so on one hand, you sit and you wonder, is God not mighty enough? And on the other hand, you sit, even if He's mighty enough, is He not good enough? Or if He is good enough, maybe He's not mighty enough. And so you bring these two questions together and they coalesce in your life to wonder whether or not, can I not depend on the Lord? Is God not dependable? Is God not trustworthy? And I wonder if maybe some of you this morning are wrestling with that very question. Is God not trustworthy? Is God out of control? Is God uncaring? Is God unconcerned about me and the way that I feel? See, Naomi didn't know. And Ruth didn't know. But the future was going to look different than the present. The future was going to look different than the present. You see, the Lord takes the wrong woman, Ruth, with the right faith in Yahweh, and he uses her in his kingdom to unveil and unroll his plan in a way that she cannot even begin to suspect. You see, from the line of Naomi, there was going to come another son from Bethlehem. And that son was going to die too. But in his death, she would not be emptied she would be filled. In his death, she would not be brought to death, she would be brought to life. In his death, she would come and she would find that there would be hope that was everlasting. And do you know why? Because things aren't always what they seem. Because God is in control. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 